Welcome, everybody. How you doing? Thank you, guys. We'll wait for the band to uh, settle down. It'll give me time to settle down. Lots of things going on this morning. Listen, before we get started, there's been a lot of things happening this morning in the background. You guys are not privy to right now, but would you do me the honor of standing up just for a minute? There is a... Uh, there is, a, there is a, a sign for thank you. It's international, is it not? Thank you. Would you do me the favor of turning around, looking up at the balcony, and just giving these, these, these guys, these folks up there, a thank you for what they did this morning to make this all possible for us? And they're still fighting some technical things. Thank you, guys. Way to go. Proud of you. So this morning, we get to talk about one of my favorite verses, and that's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The entire book is amazing. It just constantly rattles my chains, you know, for the things that go on there. But those two verses deal, deal with worship in such a great sense. And we have that portion of scripture up there right now, and we're going to be concentrating, this is part one, because I get to do this next week too, and we're going to be talking about being trans transformed or transfigured. Can you hear me? Okay. What shall we do here? Let me bring this up just a little. Testing one, two. That's why. That's why you couldn't hear me. <laughs> Any better? I'll try to keep up. Speak up. I got to keep my back straight. I got to remember. I don't have the guitar with me, so. Uh, so we'll be talking about being transformed. It's a difficult thing. Uh, I'm not sure that all of us quite understand the the experience. Or many of us at all. I mean, I'm included in that. As I'm speaking to you this morning, trust me, I've been speaking to myself the last couple of weeks concerning this. It is a great passage of scripture that con concerns our worship to God and the right worship, agreeing with God that what he's doing through us, sometimes in spite of us, is the right thing before God, and it's the only thing that will succeed in this thing we call Christianity. Could we have that verse of scripture up there, please? You'll have the King James going, coming up there. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living, living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know or you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me give you a different version. And this comes out of the complete, the complete Jewish Bible. He says, I exhort you, brothers, same thing, I beseech you, I beg you. I mean, such an, it's such an awesome phrase. He says, I exhort you, brothers, therefore, in the view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. In other words, he says, don't let yourselves be conformed to the standards of this present age or this world. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you will know what God wants and will agree with God that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. Adds a little more flavor to it. Doesn't change, doesn't change the context at all of, of what he wants there. So as we consider this portion of Scripture, we're looking at four questions. If you dare to write down things, there are four questions that we're going to deal with. Okay? The first one being, what does it mean to be transformed? Question number one. Number two, what is the goal of transformation? Number three will be, what should motivate us to undergo transformation? And the fourth one is, what does one do in order to experience transformation? Keep those four things in mind as we go through this morning, okay? So, first one, what does it mean to be transformed? I have two videos for you. I looked at a zillion things, but I got two videos for you, you know, and 
in, in a few short, short stories, trying to maybe get us into some, some meaning or some concept of what transformation means. Cool? This, this is sort of a gentle meaning of, of our contemporary culture of what they look at as transformation from one thing to another. You can tell the difference, though. The, uh, the word that is used in this, in this portion of the scripture, uh, the Greek word is metamorpho. Metamorpho means to change from one form to another. Metamorpho is, is, is the root word for the word metamorphosis. And we've all heard that word, metamorphosis. And I've got a video clip that will sort of demonstrate a little bit of metamorphosis for you. Get number two going, guys. Butterflies, like beetles, go through a complete four-stage metamorphosis as they develop from egg to adult. In the spring, the female swallowtail searches for plants on which to lay her eggs. She lays them one at a time onto the plant's leaves. The butterfly's second stage of development is the larva. We call butterfly larvae caterpillars. The caterpillars develop inside the eggs for about a week. Then, they begin chewing their way out. After wriggling out of the eggs, the caterpillars are hungry, and often the first thing they eat is the egg shell itself. Then, it's off to look for some tasty green leaves. As the caterpillars eat and grow, their hard skins, or exoskeletons, soon are stretched to the bursting point. Now, it emerges, wearing a brand new skin. Next, the insect will enter its pupil stage. To do that, the caterpillar searches for a suitable twig. It will fasten itself to the twig by spinning a safety belt of silken threads. The caterpillar begins to shed its skin for the last time. When the old skin splits apart, the pupa emerges. At first, the pupa's outer surface is fairly soft, but it soon develops into a hard shell. Inside the pupa, there's a lot of activity going on, as the body structure of the caterpillar changes to that of the adult butterfly. This process will take about three weeks. Now, the pupal shell splits apart. The butterfly extends its legs and antennae out of the shell. Once its legs are strong enough, the butterfly pulls itself out of the pupal shell. At this point, its body is soft and wrinkled looking, but all its organs are fully developed. The sunlight has dried its wings. The swallowtail spreads them for the first time. That's the one we're used to seeing, isn't it? The, the, the whole metamorphosis of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. A couple of things, if you didn't notice. You saw the new, the new butterfly coming out. Did you notice that it left the old one behind? It left that old cater, caterpillar shell behind. Didn't take it with it. Didn't let it hang on to its back or, you know, couple of suitcases and, and, and says, I'm going to take it with me wherever I fly. It didn't. It left it behind. I saw those things, but that's me. Now, considering, <clears throat> considering how that word is used in the New Testament, in Matthew 17, we begin to see the beginnings of this word, this, this transfiguration. And in, in Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2, this is what the New King James tells us. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. These guys were privy to watching Christ go through the transfiguration. And there's a couple of things that happened there. Number one, he began to change form. Most movies that I've seen depicting the gospel, and especially that scene, they come so short of what, what happened there. They have him coming out of that scene with, with a garment that was probably bleached white, and that's it. They maybe washed his face, but nothing else really shows a changing of form. The scripture tells us that his faith, his face shone. It gives us the same, the same incident that happened with Moses when they were out in the wilderness. 
And he would meet with God in the tabernacle. And he would come out, and he had such a glow on his face that he actually had to put a veil over it because the people couldn't take the brightness that came out of there. The scripture says that, that the Lord's face shone like the sun. It was bright. His clothing was completely changed. Couldn't help but be changed. There was this change from one form to the next. Now, if we go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, we look at what should be happening to us as Christians in this transformation. We're, we're, ta we're being taken from, if, if we want to use the caterpillar analogy, we're taken from being an, a caterpillar coming to where God is bringing us to, to acknowledge him, to know him, to become, to become saved, and, and we turn into these butterflies. In this world of Christianity, God doesn't have caterpillars in his flock. When we come to him, we become butterflies. Bear with me as I, as, as I, as I string this. We are, we are to remember that we have become part of the family of the transformed. God in his mercy has, has changed us from one form to another. He hasn't changed us in order to go back and continue being who we were. That's not what he's done. When we, when we came to him and acknowledged that there was no other way and, and, and gave him the only thing that we had to give to him, and that was our souls, he changed us. He transformed us. Now, let's get into the concept of this whole transformation. And the idea that Paul is, is bringing forth on this is that as Christians, we are, we are to undergo a complete change. It's not a partial change. It is a complete change that we go through. And under God's power, this change is, is expressed in our change of character and our change of conduct. You know, the old, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not who I used to be, praise God, you know, and, and I, I can't remember how, all how that went, but I'm not who I used to be. I understand that. The moment that I acknowledged Christ as my Savior, I became someone different. It didn't show on the outside right away, but in the inside, there was a transformation that took place. Again, we are, or were caterpillars that have been changed into butterflies. Paul uses the passive voice on this. We had a little thing on stage when the band was playing. We were talking about the, the active voice and, and the passive voice, right, Ted? We talked about that. Uh, the passive voice for us in this, this part of the grammar is that something is being done to us. We're not doing it on our own. The, the translation of, of those two verses in the Jewish Complete Bible tells us that we are to continually let God change us by the renewing of our minds so that we will prove that his will is not only right, but it's complete, and it will succeed. He, he will complete what he, what he began. Did he, he, told, he tells us that uh, the one who began this thing in you and me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is part of this concept. So, this is something that we don't do on our own power, but it is God's power and by his grace that we are being changed from one form to another. Keep that in mind, please. We have become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right, he is a new creation. Paul says that the old have passed, the old has passed away, the new has come, right? We are constantly told that in the scriptures, that we are something new. We're no longer that old form. In, uh, in 1 Peter First chapter, 13 through 16, Peter says that we are to uh, gird up our loins, right? Be of sober mind, rest in the hope that we have fully upon the grace that God has brought to us 
at the revelation or will bring to us the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming ourselves to the former lust, as in our ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct because he tells us we are to be holy because God is holy. We understand a couple of things. We are to be people who are, are, are sober-minded, clear in our thinking. We are to be those that are ready in our obedience to God. And we are to be those that are holy in our living. And not just part of our living, but in all of our living. We, remember, we are changed people. We've been transformed. God says we are to be holy because He is holy. So, the goal of transformation, we are to become like Christ. If you, if you don't know that, you need to be aware of this. When you were saved, God had one thing in mind, and that's to bring you and stretch you into the image of His Son. So, in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As I took a closer look at this, this portion of Scripture, I've heard it many times before, but it was like, eh, you know, I'm not so sure, you know. Because it was painting a picture for me that, a picture for me that when I get up, and I go to the mirror, because I always thought about James, you know, the person that looks in the mirror. He, he, the, the moment he leaves the mirror, he quickly forgets who he was. Here it tells us that what God is doing in this transformation to you and me, that when we get up and we look in the mirror, we see the reflection of God. And he's changing that reflection one degree at a time, degree by degree, or glory to the next glory. As you and I understand that we have been transformed, that we are changed people, that we're no longer caterpillars, but we are butterflies, if, if we continue to use that analogy, that when we look in the mirror, we see God's glory, not our imperfections. And that God is doing the work, and every time, every time we are in that that. that that arena of being reminded that we are to be sober-minded, we are to be clear in our thinking, right? We are not to be driven by the, by, by the evil lust or the desires of this age, of this world, but have determined by the renewing of our minds to allow God to change us. We begin to see God, God's glory in that face, in that mirror instead of our own. And that is what the Holy Spirit is doing in bringing us into the image of His Son, Jesus. We are, we are His disciples. There is a purpose in us being disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said that the disciple, the disciple is not above His teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like His teacher. The Scripture somewhere says that we have no other teacher but the Holy Spirit of God. We have those within our circles, that, the mentors, you know, uh, lower, higher-end mentors that, that help us in, in, in our walk with Christ. But the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And God's purpose for us as disciples is that He is slowly but surely bringing us into the image of His Son. And that, without a doubt, rolls into our, our lives, our daily living as Christians. In Colossians 3, 9 and 10, these are some of the, remember we talked about the change in character and the change in conduct? The scripture begins, begins to outline the character and the conduct of these transferred or transformed people. He says uh, in verse 9 in Colossians, the third chapter, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man with his who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You know, that's a biggie for us. Do not lie. It's a simple one, but it's a biggie for us. Do not lie to one another. 
In this culture today, even as believers, it's easy. And we do it often, unfortunately. We deceive one another, and we lie to each other. Brothers, sisters, that ought not to be true for us as believers in Christ. Now, his purpose is for us to be like Christ, so he wants us to live like Christ. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, and this is what Christ did on the earth. In Hebrews 10, the declaration was made. Jesus said, a sac or sacrifice and offering in, 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 the, in, in, the, uh, Jewish, in the Jewish complete Bible, it says that, that animal sacrifices and meal offerings you did not require, but a perfect body you have made for me. We are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. I can't, I can't help but stretch that in those two verses. In, uh, in Colossians 1 through 17, let me, let me read this portion of Scripture for you. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are from above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. He said, To set your mind on things above, not on the things, not on, the things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, including anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language that normally comes out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Scythian slave or free, but Christ is in all in all character of the new man, therefore as the elect of God, holy, beloved, put on the tender mercies of God. And these are kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you must also do the same. But above these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you, you were called in one body, and be thankful that God has called you to this. We are, we are to prove that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Everything that God calls us to, and everything that he's taking us through, is to do one thing, and that's to prove that what he said is right. It's the only thing that will, that will succeed in this thing we call Christianity. So, in John, in John 6, 38, we see that, that the Lord himself, this is what he sought to do. He told his disciples, for I, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Everything that Christ did was to prepare himself to be that living sacrifice for God on the altar. Everything that God is doing for you and me today from the beginning is to have us be living sacrifices. He prepared the body. He prepared the sacrifice. We get on the altar and we declare that this is who we are before him. It's been said that the problem with living sacrifices is they tend to get off the altar. We do that. I've watched many a movie where someone is going to be sacrificed and they're screaming and hollering to get off that altar. The last thing they want is to be that sacrifice. And yet for us, 
that is the first thing we need to do. Because when we sacrifice ourselves before him, we give up all our, all our rights. We give up all those things that we declare are who we are. Now, back to Romans 12 too. We are not to be conformed to this world, to this age, to all the drama that goes on, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and, and the most acceptable and perfect will of God. Is it not the goal of being transformed to understand that we have been changed from one form to another? It's not only that goal, but it is also the goal of our Christianity, our, the goal of our Christian living. The problem that I have in my mind is that if that's to be true, why do so many, why do so many of our, our brothers and sisters miss that? Something's lacking. And, and they don't seem to catch that point at all, that they have been, if they know him, if they've come to him, that they have been truly changed. It's like that butterfly. He left that skin behind. He didn't turn around and say, oh, I forgot something. Hey, come on. He left it behind. You and I have been transformed. The old man is truly dead. No reason for you to resurrect him. God never tells us to do that. We are told to reckon the old man. You are to be decisive in that, in that statement. You are to say, this dude is dead. No longer here. I am a new creation in Christ. So, why do, our, why do many of our brothers and sisters remain caterpillars? Perhaps they lack motivation. What is, what, what, motiv what motivates us to do things? What motivates us to say have a barbecue? A little hunger? Uh, not wanting to heat up the kitchen, especially this time of the year? Uh, maybe going out and buying the right veggies, you know, hey, you know, they work great on the, ve on, on the barbecue as opposed to inside the house. Got family and friends over, this is a great time. These things motivate us to do, do certain things. What motivates you to go to a new movie? Trailers? Intrigue? Some of the excitement? Friends calling you up, hey, let's go to a movie? Popcorn? Soda? Some of them have, even have Starbucks now, so some Haagen-Dazs? Those kind of things are motivators. What motivates you to go to a sports game? Even turn on the tube just to watch that. Or maybe, you know, when you have, you know, in baseball, you have a double, you know, you have two going on at the same time. You know, back to back. You're going to have a full day of baseball, full day of football. You know, you've got, you've got the remote. You know there's at least five or six games on, and you can buzz on each one of them, you know, in between the commercials and stuff. What motivates you to do that? What motivates you to come to church? To gather like this with the saints. Friends, family, duty, love for your friends and family. Hopefully the excitement of what God is doing, not only in your life, but the lives of the brothers and sisters that you have here. Steve, I come, you know. The last time I had a chance to be up here, we talked about the mercies of God. And I am convinced that should be our motivation. Romans, when Paul was writing Romans from, from almost the first chapter all the way until he gets to this, this 12th chapter, he speaks of nothing but God's mercies. Back to 12.1, again, he says, we are, to, we are to therefore, by the mercies of God, present our bodies as holy and living sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. 
That's the King James. In uh, Romans 6, chapter 6, 16 through 18, Paul wrote this. He says, do, not, do you not know that you, that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are the one's slave whom you obey, whether of, of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that from the from of doctrine to which you were delivered. Almost doesn't sound right, huh? This is what he was saying. There was this time when you were a slave to sin. You, you and I actually had shackles on our hands and on our, on our ankles. And we were slaves to sin because we obeyed sin. We did whatever we wanted to do pretty much when, whenever we wanted to do. We obeyed, we obeyed our own desires. Rarely did we consider them evil. Rarely did we consider them lustful. And I, I imagine at no time did we ever consider them to be idolatry. But we were shackled and we obeyed the master that allowed us to do what we wanted to do. Christ comes into our life, we are transformed. He takes the shackles off, off your ankles and off your wrists, and he says, you are no longer held obedient to that master. Here's the irony. Never looked at it like this before. He doesn't throw the shackles away. He puts them right back on and he says, these shackles now are for you unto righteousness. Now you are to be a slave unto righteousness. We didn't stop being slaves. We changed masters. We no, we no longer follow the evil one. Now we have to follow Christ. We follow God. And everything deals with righteousness. Every word, every thought, every deed is unto righteousness. Different perspective. Everything changes. We are now transformed. No more fooling around. And this is not a dress rehearsal. This is a real thing that he's brought us into. So, let's see if I've lost my spot, huh? In speaking of the mercies of God, Romans, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Everybody knows that one, right? We've all been given that one, even... When, when others were, were wanting us to come to Christ. The wages of sin are death. But his mercy, the gift of God, is eternal life. That's one of his mercies. That alone should, should motivate us for transformation. The peace of God in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God. We have access to it in Romans 5.2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have been saved from God's wrath. These are all his mercies. Just a few. In Romans 5.9, he says much more than that. He says, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. That's the reason you, you and I are saved. Apart from God, you are under his wrath. There's only two types of people in this world, right? Those that are in faith and those that are not. When people leave this planet, they die one of two ways, in faith or without faith. Each one has a consequence. We have, I didn't have it on here, but hope, is one of his mercies. In Romans, we are told that, that we have hope, and this hope is undeniable, and it will never fail us, because this hope is given through us, through God's Holy Spirit. And he, direct, he directs that hope directly into our hearts. He just covers our hearts with this hope, straight from the Holy Spirit. Bypasses whatever else, but it comes directly from him. And he says, this hope cannot fail you. 
That's another one of God's mercies. That should motivate us. God's mercies, they should move us to repent and to seek transformation. Romans again, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring enough for yourself wrath in the day, in, wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness, righteous judgment of God. This is what the world ignores. This is what the world bypasses. There is a judgment coming. There's a judgment for believers and there's a judgment for unbelievers. Woe to the one that leaves the planet without Christ. Bad stuff. That's what I read. Bad stuff. The love of Christ should cause us to repent, should cause us to seek transformation. Paul revealed the motivating power of the love of Christ in 2 Corinthians. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. Does it compel you? It compels us because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We should be compelled to live for Christ just because he died for you and me, because we couldn't do it for ourselves. In Galatians 2.20, Paul states, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. True of us? When, when you wake up in the morning and you speak to your father, is that the first thing that hits you? Is that you no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in you? The righteousness that you and I have, not of our own. It's his righteousness. That should be the breakfast of our morning. That should be the thing that should get you up and flying through your day, is that you no longer live. It's not your flesh that is in control, but it is Christ himself that lives in you. That should be your motivation in how, in how your perspective is outlined for that day, how you treat people, how you greet people, how you love people, how, how, you, how you deal with conflict throughout that day what you listen to, what you look at, what you read, what your mind opens up to, what you share with others, what you don't share with others. I miss anything? You know, the idea, the reality that Christ lives in us should consume us. So that when we look in the mirror, we don't see what we used to see, but now we see this, this transformation. We see this person that is being changed from glory to glory. And it is God's Holy Spirit that is doing that to us. He is changing us from one degree to the next. If he's not, then you need to do what Hebrews says. You need to stop and really check to see if you're really in the faith. Something's not right. Now, brothers and sisters, if this does not motivate you, something's wrong. I used to have this problem when I was growing up. Anytime I was in trouble, I would laugh. You know, anytime I got to some deep stuff, especially in the principal's office, that I would begin to laugh and I'd get into more trouble. So when I do that, just, you know, it's like the judge telling the jury, please disregard that, you know. It's not there. There is only one alternative if we're not being motivated, if we're not transformed. And that's to conform to the desires and that's to conform to the image of this world. The word conformed 
And even though I worked on it, I'm going to mess it up. So here we go. Suskamitso. I'm only going to say it once. The word, according to Vines, is transitory. It means changeable. It means unstable. It's the same word we get schematic from. At most, at most, this means that we can be a cheap copy. Imitation. Non-real. At most, if we're not transformed, we will be, one, conformed to this world, we'll act like the world, we'll be like those in this world, and that only does one thing that brings shame to the name of Christ. Assuming that you're saying you're a believer and there's no change. We will act like other Christians that are going in the same direction. Outwardly, we'll act like Christians. We'll even appear like them. We'll dress like them. We'll use the same words. We'll, we'll capture some of the same mannerisms, some same quaint sayings. But we'll be just a cheap copy. And cheap copies, like anything else, they eventually just wear out. And the real, the real deal will recognize Many times the real deal will recognize it early and hopefully begin to help. It doesn't happen often. So, is this what we want? That's not what I want. I do not want to bring shame to the name of Christ. I don't want to be a plastic Christian. I don't want to be a cheap imitation. I want to be the real thing. So, how do we do this? We have to come before God. Our hearts open, our minds open, allow Him to set the boundaries, declare certain things before Him. This is my take on it. And these are the things that I have in mind. Number one, that we declare before God that we are sinners. If you do not know Christ, number one is where you start. You have to come before, before God and you have to acknowledge what the scriptures already acknowledge, that you are a sinner, you're lost, you're under God's wrath, and there needs to be repentance on your end. Number two, that we declare before God that we know we deserve death and that he offers us life instead, and we choose life. Again, if you don't know him, number two is for you also. Number three, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, Confess with your mouth that Christ has died for your sins. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And that he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and me. It's another scripture added in there. The scripture declares that you will be saved if you do those two things. Again, if you don't know him, number three is also for you. Number four. Having declared these things, God says he will save you. And this will begin the transformation. You'll come out of that shell. And this is instantaneous. I know of no better, no better way to tell you this, that when we come to Christ and we surrender to him, the only thing we can surrender, and that is our souls, and acknowledge that we will follow him, God makes the transformation and he begins it faster than that. And he begins the work. After that, you begin to, to let him have his way with you. Number five, that's for the choir. That's for the rest of us. We commit to him daily in communication, all our wants, all our needs, all our complaints, 
and everything in between we bring to him daily. Scripture says that we are to, to fret about nothing, but in all things, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we are to bring all our worries before him. And this is what he promises. He promises that he will guard your hearts and your minds, and he will give you a peace outside of yourself no one will understand if we do that. It should be our daily movement. And of course, number seven, we are to read his word and we are to do his word. In James, and let me, let me bring it up. I don't know if I have that portion of scripture up in James chapter one. Let me share this with you as, as we begin to close. just have to find it, don't we? And it's after Peter. Is it? No, it's be before. Here it is. We've got it. Okay, James. And this is through the complete Jewish Bible. And this is what James shares with us. I wrote it down in my other notes. Forgive me. There we go. Okay. He says, for the transformed. So rid yourselves of all vulgarity and obvious evil. And receive meekly the word implanted in you that can save your lives. Don't deceive yourselves by only hearing what the word says, but do it. For whoever hears the word but doesn't do it, what it says is it is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror, who looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. But if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah, the perfect word of God, which gives freedom and continues, becoming not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work it requires, then he will be blessed in what he does. Anyone who thinks he is religiously observant but does not control his tongue in deceiving him, is deceiving himself, and his observance counts for nothing. The religious observance is that God the Father considers pure and faultless as this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world, not being conformed by the pattern of this world. Now, two short stories. Actually, one's a long one. Forgive me. I just lied to you. Let me give you a snapshot of a transformed man. This man is in the Bible. His name is Peter. I don't know how much you know about Peter, but this gave me a little more insight to who Peter was. Originally, he was called Simon, and that was a very common Jewish name in the New Testament. He was the son of Jonah. His mother was, was nowhere named in Scripture. He had a younger brother called Andrew, who was, who was first brought to him, or first brought him to Jesus. His native town was Bethsaida, on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee, to which also Philip belonged. And here he was brought up by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he was trained to the occupation of a fisher. His father probably died while he was still young, and he and his brother were, were brought up under the care of Zebedee and his wife Salome. There the four youths, Simon, Andrew, James, John, they spent their boyhood and early manhood in constant fellowship. Simon and his brother doubtless enjoyed all the advantages of, a relig of religious training and were early instructed in an acquaintance with the scriptures and with great prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah. They did not probably enjoy, however, any special training in the study of the law under any of the rabbis. When Peter appeared before the Sanhedrin, he looked like an unlearned man. Simon was a Galilean, and he, was, and he was that out and out. The Galileans had a marked character of their own. They had a reputation for an independence and energy 
which often ran out into turbulence. They were at the same time of a franker and more transparent disposition than their brethren in the South. In these respects, in bluntness, impetuosity, headliness, and in simplicity, Simon was a genuine Galilean. They spoke a particular dialect. They had, a, they had difficulty with the guttural sounds and some others. Their pronunciations were reckoned harsh in Judea. The Galilean often, or, or the Galilean accent, struck to Simon, or stuck to Simon, all through his career. It betrayed him as a follower of Christ when he stood within the judgment hall. It betrayed his own nationality and that of those who co-joined with him on the day of Pentecost. It would seem that Simon was married before he became an apostle. His wife's mother is referred to in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. He was in all probability accompanied by his wife on his missionary journeys. He appears to have been settled in Capernaum, and when Christ entered into his public ministry, he may have reached beyond the age of 30. His house was large enough to give a home to his brother Andrew and his wife's mother, and also to Christ, who seems to have lived with him, according to Mark, as well as his own family. At, uh, at, at Bethbara, or Bethany, beyond the Jordan, John the Baptist had borne testimony concerning Jesus as the Lamb of God. Andrew and John, hearing it, followed Jesus, and they abode with him where he was. They were convinced by his gracious words and by his authority with which he spoke. And he was the Messiah. And Andrew went forth and found Simon and brought him to Jesus. Jesus at once recognized Simon and declared that hereafter he would be called Cephas, an Aramaic name corresponding to the Greek Petros, which means a mass of rock detached from the living rock. The Aramaic, the Aramaic does not occur again, but the name Peter gradually displaces the old name Simon, though our Lord himself always uses the name Simon when addressing him. We are not told what impression the first interview with Jesus produced on the mind of Simon. When we next meet him by the Sea of Galilee, there the four, Simon and Andrew, James and John, had had an unsuccessful night's fishing, and Jesus appeared suddenly and entering into Simon's boat, bade him launch forth and let down the nets. And he did so, and he enclosed a great multitude of fishes. This was plainly a miracle wrought before Simon's eyes, and the awestruck disciple cast himself at the feet of Jesus, crying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus addressed him with the assuring words, Fear not, and announced to him his life's work. He next called him into the, into the rank of apostleship, and he becomes a fisher of men. In the stormy seas of the world of human life, and he takes a more and more prominent part in all the leading events of our Lord's life. It is he who utters the notable profession of faith at Capernaum, and again at Caesarea Philippi. This profession at Caesarea was one of supreme importance, and our Lord, in response, used his memorable words, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. From this time forth, Jesus began to speak of his sufferings, and for this, Peter rebuked him, and our Lord, of course, used the words. At the, close, at the close of this brief sojourn at Caesarea, our Lord took Peter and James and John with him into the high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. Peter, on that occasion, under the impression of the scene produced on his mind, Lord, this is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles. On his return to Capernaum, the collectors of the tax, the temple tax, which every Israelite 20 years and older had to pay. They came to Peter and reminded him that Jesus had not paid it. Our Lord instructed Peter to go and catch a fish in the lake and take from its mouth the exact amount that was needed for the tax. At the end, as the end was drawing near, our Lord sent Peter and John into the city to prepare a place where he should keep the feast with his disciples. There he was forewarned of the fearful sin in which he afterwards fell. He accompanied our Lord with the, from the guest chamber to the Garden of Gethsemane, which he and the other two had been witnesses of all the transfiguration were permitted to enter with our Lord, and while the rest were left out. Here he passed through the strange experience. Under a sudden impulse, he cut off the ear of Malchus, 
One of the band that came forth to take Jesus then followed the scenes of the judgment hall and his bitter grief. He is found in John's company early on the morning of the resurrection. He boldly entered into the, into the empty grave. He saw the linen cloths laid by themselves. To him, the first of the disciples, our risen Lord, revealed himself, thus conferring on him a single honor and showing him how fully he was restored in God's favor. We next read of the Lord's singular interview with Peter on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, where three times he asked him, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? After this scene at the lake, we hear nothing of Peter until again he appears with others at the ascension. It was he who proposed that the vacancy caused by the apostasy of Judas should be filled up. He is prominent on the day of Pentecost. The event of that day completed the change in Peter himself through painful discipline of his fall. He is now more than the unreliable, unchangeable, self-confident man ever swaying between rash courage and weak timidity. But steadfast, trusted, guide, director of the fellowship of believers, this is who he now is. The intrepid preacher of Christ in Jerusalem and abroad. And now he has become Cephas, and we hear almost nothing of the name Simon anymore. After the miracle of the temple gate, the persecution arose against the Christians, and Peter was cast into prison. He boldly defended himself and his companions at the bar of the council. A fresh outburst of violence against the Christians led to the whole body of the apostles being cast into prison. But during the night, they were wonderfully delivered and were found in the morning teaching in the temple again. A second time, Peter defended them before the council, who, when they called the apostles, had beaten them, then they let him go. The time had come for Peter to leave Jerusalem, and after laboring for some time in Samaria, he returned to Jerusalem and reported to the church the results of his work. Here he remained for a period of time during which he met Paul for the first time since his conversion. Leaving Jerusalem again, he went forth on a missionary journey to, to Lydia and Joppa. He is next called to the open door of the Christian church to the Gentiles by admission of Cornelius at Caesarea. After remaining for some time in Caesarea, he returns to Jerusalem, where he defends, he defended his conduct with reference to the Gentiles. And next we hear of his being cast into prison by Herod Agrippa. But in the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, and he went forth and found refuge in the house of Mary. He took part in the, the deliberations of the Council of Jerusalem regarding the relation of the Gentiles to the church. This subject, he had awakened new interest at Antioch and for its settlement was referred, to the, was referred to the council of the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Here Paul and Peter meet again. We have no further mention of Peter in the Acts of the Apostles. He seems to have gone down to Antioch, Antioch and after the council of Jerusalem and there to have been guilty of disassembling for which he was severely reprimanded by Paul who rebuked him for straight to his face. After this, he appears to have carried the gospel to the east and to have labored for a while in Babylon on the Euphrates. There is no satisfactory evidence that he was ever in Rome. Where or when he died is not certainly known. Peter probably died between A.D. 64 and A.D. 67. That's a transferred or transformed man. Everything that Peter went through, beginning in his 30s, when Christ changed him, he transformed, transformed him. He had a couple of slips. You and I have a couple of slips every once in a while. But we always must remember that God has changed us. We are not who we used to be. Praise God, we are not who we used to be. And we are not, God is not completely done with us yet. We are being transformed, remember, from glory to glory. One degree to the next. As we obey Christ, as we follow him with all our hearts, the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? All your strength. That little verse of scripture will keep you busy for the rest of your life. Alone. Would you bow your heads with me, please?
If you don't know the Savior, if you have never made a commitment to Him, now's the time. Declare before Him that you are a sinner. Declare before Him that the only thing that you deserve is death. And then let Him remind you that you can bypass that death and His mercy will give you life. And you can grab on to His grace and the hope that He has ready for you. If you've been on the fence, man, get off the fence. Get off that fence. Because the only thing that awaits you right now is God's wrath. Give your life to Him. Father, I thank You. I praise You because You are God. And I am not. Fill us, Lord God, with Your strength this day. Help us to remember how much you love us. May we be motivated by your mercies, by the death of your son, alone. But by your grace, your hope, your love, your strength, your gentleness, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.